Some of the topics discussed on Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast are difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode nine of Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sarah, and with me is my co-host, Dan. Good morning. It's exciting. Assuming it's morning. Right. Where you are. It's morning where we are while we're recording, but... Yep. Right. Yeah. People could be listening to this at, you know, right. like 10 p.m. Right. In which case, I don't really care about your evening. That's not nice. That's not nice. <laughs> Have a good evening. Have a good afternoon. Have a good all the things. There you go. Um, we're going to actually just get right into the case this week. Um, it is truly an unbelievable one. In August 2008, an 18-year-old woman, referred to by her middle name of Marie, filed a police report explaining she had been raped. She reported having been bound, gagged, and raped at knife point in her apartment in Linwood, Washington. She reported the incident to Sergeant Jeffrey Mason and Jerry Ritgarn. I don't know what his title is. I don't know if he was detective or officer, but he's involved in this. Uh, he was a member of the police department, though? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like, his um, status. Right. His, his right. He may have position. been a civilian employee. So. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway. This dude. Um, this, yes, this dude. Uh, police guidelines advised that rape victims not be interrogated as they may be uncertain of details or perhaps even report conflicting information. As we mentioned in both episode six and minisode three, this often happens to victims and survivors of significant trauma. While investigating Marie's report, police had found evidence of an assailant and also found abrasions to Marie's vagina and wrist. This would show consistencies with possible sexual assault. However, two of Marie's former foster parents started believing Marie was lying about the instance due to her calm demeanor, and these former foster parents reported their doubts to the police. Wow, that's a really responsible fostering. Mm -hmm. Mason and Rickgarn called Marie back into the police station to listen to her story again, as Rickgarn said he didn't believe her. He asked Marie if the rapist was real, and to that, Marie replied, no. Without reading Marie the Miranda warning, Mason and Rickgarn asked her to write a statement that she had made a false report. She instead wrote that she had dreamed the incident and was not sure of what actually happened. After more hours of questioning by the police, Marie wrote that she had lied. Wow. So. Yeah, more hours of questioning. Exactly. And as their protocol says, and this is protocol across the board, you should not interrogate a victim. If somebody is coming forward with claims, you, you can't assume they're lying. You have to take their claim seriously. Right. And because these foster parents 
thought that, you know, she she was probably lying about the incident and she had what they thought were not um, consistencies with being sexually assaulted in, in her demeanor and her behaviors. And because she said that she was unsure about how everything happened, they automatically assumed she was lying. And like, I mean, especially as parents, like granted they're foster parents, but still, like you're 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 taking this this oath to care for this person as if they're your own child. Yeah. How do you how do you by default disbelieve your own child? Especially with something like this, it's not like you know your kids got fudge on their lips and they claim they didn't steal the fudge. Right. Like, yeah. How do you disbelieve your daughter yeah. when she said something like this has happened yeah. to her? So after Marie made her statement that she had lied to police about the incident. She told the staff at Project Ladder, which is an organization she had joined that helps people transition from foster care to living alone. So she was of the age that she transitioned out of foster care, and she was now living in um, a Project Ladder, like apartment complex kind of thing. So they, they help you transition from, you know, being in the system to being out on your own and, and being a successful um, adult after you know going through unfortunately the things that most foster children go through so she told project ladder that she had made the report that she lied under duress the staff encouraged marie to return to the police and she asked if she could take a polygraph test but then declined when ritgarn threatened jail time and loss of housing if she failed the test wow what a piece of shit honestly Mason then filed a false reporting charge against Marie. Wow. Which was pretty much like unprecedented in this circumstance in their jurisdiction. Right. It like doesn't happen. Right. But these guys had some sort of like hostility, vendetta, I don't even know. What a piece of trash. Like how can you even be that upset about somebody you know what I mean? Like, even if she's lying and just claiming that this happened, she's not pointing anyone out where she could have some kind of motivation to say, oh, I don't like this guy, so I'm going to file this false claim to get him arrested. No. None of that. And, yeah. mind you, again, there was evidence in her apartment of an assailant having been in there. Right. And there were signs of injury on her. Right. Right. So, I mean, there are consistencies here showing that maybe she really was attacked. Right. And again, like, what could possibly be her motivation for filing the false claim? It's not like she's saying a particular person did it. It's not like she's making an insurance claim to get the damage fixed no. to her apartment. Like, mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm reaching here. I'm playing devil's advocate. Of course. But let's say that she, whatever, burned her apartment down and thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to make up some kind of wacky story so that I can get the insurance to pay for it. Like, it's not my fault. But, like, your insurance is going to pay for it regardless, even if you burn your own house down. Yeah. You know, the insurance is going to pay for it unless it's found that it's intentional. Like, you know, I can't even think of a story in which you would go to the police, pretend that you've been sexually assaulted, basically assault yourself because she had signs of that right. in areas that only get yeah. damaged in that event. Like, why would you go through all that trouble when there's literally no motiva no motivation to? Right. She has no reason to make this up. And we've talked about this in other episodes. It, it's very unlikely that someone is going to come forward with a false 
accusation about sexual assault. It's extremely unlikely. So, yeah. W- why is there this this thought that oh she must be lying? Like right. where where does this even? I don't care about the foster parents. Fine. Maybe she has a history of lying and they're crappy people and they just... whatever. But why is that reason for the police to then assume she's lying? Right. Just because some person said she's lying? Let's let's think about that. If all of these crimes happen and... Um, you know, the girlfriend of the person who is arrested says, oh, no, 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 that person over there is lying. He never did it. The police are just going to be like, oh, you're oh, right. Okay. We're going to take Sounds your word good. for it. You're clearly a professional detective. What? You, you, and, and a judge and a litigator. Yeah. And you know like, you're qualified to make that kind of assumption. Why, <laughs> why would they just take the words of these right. random people? Right over what this girl is claiming. Right, right. And what the evidence is showing. And again, especially given the nature of the incident. Yes. <sighs> it's it's such a bizarre thing that people even... Right. Right. It's not like this is you're claiming that, uh, you know, you get pulled over and the cop tickets you for not having your license on you and you claim like, oh, you know, my friend took my wallet from me and yeah. wouldn't give it back so I just decided to drive without my license. Right. Like, in that case, yeah, maybe, whatever. Even if the story is true, you give the guy the ticket anyway, because it's not that big a deal. But, like, the nature of the incident, as it gets more severe, requires more diligence. Absolutely. Like. Absolutely. <sighs> so, this all leaked to the public, and the media got hold of it, of course, and a firestorm of negativity ensued. An attack website against Marie was even created. <sighs> She quit her job and even contemplated suicide. You know, it's ridiculous how often with these stories that we talk about, somebody's life is on the line. Yes. Suicide come, becomes... Yes. Like... And again, these are reasons why people don't come forward. We have to stop right. victim blaming. We have to stop telling these people that they're, they must be lying. This can't ever have happened to you. Right. We don't do that with, with you know burglary victims or or right. or assault victims in the sense of like you know being hit with a bat or right. something like nothing sexual assault right. but we don't do that with those victims so why yeah. why do we do this with sexual assault victims right why is that an okay thing to to assume somebody's lying about being attacked by somebody this is such a vulnerable time yeah you have to be empathetic. You have to be compassionate towards these people. And clearly nobody in this entire case is being compassionate towards her. Right. Right. It's, it's unbelievable. Literally. I mean, like it it really, it, it, it bothers me so much that this is the one circumstance that everyone collectively comes together and says, she's lying. Right. Why? What is it about sexual assault that makes people so... quick to judge? Right, and so and so vitriolic, so angry, yes. so venomous, like you said. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that we can answer that. We can speculate, yeah. you know, that it's this 
this masculinity whereby like if a if a woman because let's be honest the majority of these cases are men assaulting women right yes it happens to others but the majority of these incidents are men assaulting women and i think the idea is if you take this hyper masculine person in a society which is clearly male dominant yes um and you and you attack any of their rights it's like for example if there's a politician up for election and they're a good person and they're trying to serve the public but they happen to support this one thing that's going to harm you in some way. It's going to raise your taxes or it's going to make it more difficult for you to do, to do a thing that you want. You will then say, no, that's the crappiest person ever. Mm-hmm. And you'll go and tell all your friends that this is a don't vote for this person. They're crappy. But you're doing these things for selfish motivations. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so anytime you threaten someone's rights, and I'm going to put that in quotes, you know, they just get, they get so defensive and they have to mm-hmm. attack the idea that this right is going to be taken away from them. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know if this is just a thing where, you know, in particular white society has always been so male dominant and, and, you know, where men could just do whatever they wanted throughout, you know, whatever medieval Europe and, and everything, men could just do whatever yeah. that they feel like it's their right to be able to just take whatever women may want. Right. And the idea that you criminalize it attacks that, and again, I'm putting this in quotes, that right that they feel that they have. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get this guy who, you know, he's he's a, he's a cop and he carries a gun every day and he goes to the bar and he's off of work and shoots the shit with his buddies and throws darts and, you know, whatever. If there happens to be some, some chick at the bar, you know, he, whatever. You know, it is what it is. And they feel like they have this right and if you and if you criminalize that activity obviously it's not a right i mean mm-hmm. the, the 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 antithesis of a right is is a crime right yes <laughs> you know, doing something that you you're not justified in doing is by definition a crime mm-hmm. and so i don't know i mean i could speculate that people who get so angry about this feel like you're attacking my right but like it you shouldn't have the right to just take whatever you want no. in life, especially a person. No, no. Like, you don't have that right. You, you never should have had that right. You know, and, and, and even in many societies, you know, going all the way back to, again, medieval Europe and pre-medieval Europe, even though those kinds of things happened, there were, there were never really rights except for in certain cases where royalty had the rights mm. to, like, take a bride on her wedding night, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and even that, you know, they've done they've done some studying and found that that's extremely rare. That even that was the case. But you know, I don't know. The the, the modern, you know, ultra chauvinistic male gets this idea that they're that they're entitled to. And I don't even want to say that they feel like they're entitled to rape people. But when you attack that, there's something primal inside of mm. their brain that says you're attacking me. Right. And so I'm going to attack back. Mm-hmm. But like you got to stop and think like let's let's pretend for a minute that you really do think that this is your right. Don't you think that there's something wrong with you? Right. If you think that it's your right yeah. to sexually assault someone? Yeah. You yeah. know, doesn't that, doesn't that doesn't that trigger this self-evaluation inside of you? Yeah. It should. <laughs> it should. I, I don't think it does, unfortunately. I think people in that circumstance have in their brains that it's not wrong. And so why should they think it's wrong? 
you know, it's like a narcissistic personality thing. Like they think the way they think and they don't right. think anything is wrong with the way they think. Right. And if people, there could be a thousand people telling that person, you are wrong. And they would be like, no, I'm not. They could be like, the sky is purple. Right. And there are aliens flying around up there and I see them right now. And right. people would say, no, you're wrong. And right. they would be like, no, I'm not. Right. It's just, they don't think the way that we, we should think. Right. So they don't think anything is wrong with what they're doing. Right. And it's, I don't know why, like, we have this collective mindset right. of, of, about this, though. Like, that's what, I, that's what bothers me. Is like I get that a f there are a few people who think the way that they think, but to have an entire community, um, culture, right, <laughs> country, right, think that something that's so heinous is, I just don't understand why people have to put forth their judgments mm -hmm. about something so um personal right well i mean like i said they feel like they're being attacked you know yeah but again why the why why like okay put aside the male okay. dominant brain right why women why somebody who could be a victim of this very easily why do they feel as though they can judge another woman about whether or not she has actually been sexually assaulted. And sometimes I want to say that it's out of fear, but again, they don't think this way about murder. It's, they don't think this way about burglary and you're just as likely to, to, to go, get into those situations. So why, why women support this, this ridiculous argument? that you should not absolutely do everything that you can to stop things like sexual assault is for the same reason that women support many other current anti-woman issues and people in power and that's that they've just they've just drank the kool-aid they've just bought into the system they just want to be a part of that so badly even if it places them into a subservient position yeah you know it's like it's like the unfortunate truth of everyday corporate american life you get a job and, like, if you get a job at a sufficiently large company, you know you're not going to be the president of that company. Right. You know, if I get a job at Microsoft, I'm not going to be the president of Microsoft ever. It's just not going to happen. But I'll still try to work my way up the, up the ladder, mm -hmm. even though I know I'm always going to have a boss. I'm always going to be subservient to someone else. The idea is that I, I, can, I can then work my way up to be in charge of others. Right. And like, yeah, you're doing it to get a better salary. You're doing it to better, you know, there are lots and lots of positive reasons to to try to work your way up a corporate ladder. But one negative reason to do it that many people, I'm sure, do. Some people don't. They honestly just don't care. But some people just want to be in charge of others. They just want to be in control. They and want so, the power. Right. Yeah. And so they take this role that they know they're always going to be subservient to someone just so that they can work as hard as they can to be in charge of others. And so the women that buy into this anti-feminist um, movement, these anti-feminist movements are just doing it knowing that even though they're always going to be subservient to some a-hole they will then be able to exert their authority over someone else. Mm. So look, if you go to a rally for a particular jerk in charge and you know, 
the the women there that are just subject to all the men and they'll just do whatever the men say as soon as you walk in there as a reasonable person uh they're like yes i'm gonna get her because she's even lower than i am right right how is that how is that acceptable to be like yes my day has come yeah i'm not going to be the one licking someone's boot today Mm -hmm. like shouldn't you shouldn't you first of all shouldn't we all strive for a world where no one licks anyone's boots i would (laughs) i would think so and even as you know a member of the industrial car as a a cog in the corporate complex i have a job where i'm always going to have a boss you know so i'm always going to be under someone else you know i don't I don't want to succeed so that I can be in charge of others. I want to succeed for those positive reasons so that I can right. bring in more money to support my family. Yes. And you can feel good mm-hmm. about your position and your job and what you're doing right. at, at, to to help your yeah. company. And my ability to make positive changes. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. When you're just a grunt and you, you see management making the wrong decisions, you think all day long, man, I wish I could change right. that. So if you have the motivation to work your way up so that you can change that, that's a good thing. Yeah. But if you want to get up there just so that you can let the shit roll downhill, like, ah, yeah, I don't have to do that crappy job anymore so that I can give it to someone else. Right. You know? Right. Like, even when I, I worked at a fast food restaurant, and yeah. when I when I got, like, sort of, like, an assistant manager role or whatever, I remember thinking, like, thank God I'm, ne- I'm not going to do the dishes anymore. Somebody else is going to do the right. dishes. But you know what? I still did the dishes. Yeah. Every night that I was on a closing shift. I still did the dishes, yeah. and it sucked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I was like, yeah, now that I can, you know, put that on somebody, I, d- I don't want to, because I know how much that job You sucked. know what it was like, yeah. You know, and if I have another job to do that's important to do, like inventory or locking up or whatever, yes, I'll ask somebody else uh-huh. to do it. But if I have the opportunity to get the dishes done, I'm going to do them, even right. though it sucks, because I know how much it sucks, and I don't want to give that to somebody else. Yeah. So, you know, tie that back in, you know, these, these women that are buying into this anti-feminist bullshit... They're doing it just to make somebody else wash the dishes because they've had to wash the dishes for so long and they don't want to fight for a world where everyone shares the dishwashing role. Right, yeah, you know, They okay. don't want to fight mm-hmm. for a world where nobody licks boots. They don't want to fight for a world where men, women, black, white, young, old, uh, whatever it is, all have the same opportunities. Yeah. They just assume that that's the world we're always going to live in. They're unwilling to fight for a better world so they've just said, well, since this is just going to be the crap, since crap is always going to be rolling downhill, I'm just going to keep dropping it down the hill. Yeah, that makes sense. So in October of 2008, two months after Marie reported her attack to police, one of her foster parents saw a report of a woman in Kirkland, Washington, that had been raped in the same way as Marie. However, Kirkland police abandoned this lead after Linwood Police, the department where Marie filed her report, told them on at least two separate occasions that Marie's report was a lie. In March 2009, Marie was charged with a gross misdemeanor, fined $500, and put on probation. That's insane. That's completely insane. So not only has this woman gone through so much trauma from exactly yeah. from this sexual assault, she's now not being believed by her what she thought would have been her closest confidants, her her foster parents. Um, she's being attacked by the media, by people she doesn't even know. She's contemplating suicide because she's being so blamed and shamed, and now the police department is suing her. For 
a false claim. And she's put on probation and she has to pay them a fine. It's disgusting. It's completely disgusting. It's, it's, it's the opposite of justice. Yes. It's like, you know... It's exactly what we don't want in our law enforcement. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly literally correct. the opposite it's of the what opposite. we are paying them to do. Right. And what we need them to do. Right. We need them to believe victims. Right. You know, at, at least at least initially believe. Yes. I mean, in this country, our legal system is based on the premise that you're innocent until proven right. guilty. Yes. And yet here, they're assuming that she's guilty of lying. Absolutely. And not even bothering searching for evidence of her innocence. Even with evidence, though. There even right. is evidence. Yeah. That's... Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is evidence showing yeah. that this probably happened. Right. But they don't want to look any further into it. Because, nope, she's lying. So what What were the abrasions? Right. What was? What were these injuries from? Right. Why was there evidence of somebody else in her home? Right. And again, even if even if you you want to go to the ultimate extreme and say, well, she did all of these things mm. to make up this story, why? Why would she make it up? Yeah. It's not like, she, you know, this is her husband and she's trying to get a divorce and get 50% of his assets. It's not like this is somebody she doesn't like and she's naming this person specifically to drag their name through the mud or anything like that. Right. You know, it's not like there's some insurance claim involved here for the damage of the house. She literally has zero motivation to go through all of this. Mm -hmm. So we're now going to take you to Golden, Colorado, where in January 2011, Detective Stacy Galbraith interviewed a woman who reported she was raped at gunpoint. Galbraith spoke with her husband about the incident, and he informed her that it sounded quite similar to an incident reported to his police department in Westminster, Colorado. Galbraith then decided she needed to collaborate with the Westminster police and began an investigation with Detective Edna Hendershot. Hendershot had investigated two cases in which a 59-year-old woman and a 65-year-old woman were both raped in similar ways. The detectives also found that a burglary had taken place in which a masked man had attempted to tie up a 46-year-old woman, but he jumped out of her window and was badly injured. All four cases took place in different suburbs of Denver. While the man had gone to extreme lengths to avoid leaving his DNA on the scene, touch DNA from the same paternal family line was found at three of the scenes. And touch DNA is DNA left at a scene that requires very small samples, such as um, skin cells left on an object after it has been touched. So if you touch um, like a doorknob or a car handle, you're leaving touch DNA. Um, touching your desk, touching your bag, your sweatshirt, putting your fingers through your hair, you know, any of that kind of stuff. You're leaving traces of yourself skin cells are falling off wherever you go there's nowhere that like hasn't recorded that you've been there basically skin cells are constantly sloughing off of our bodies that's just that's yep. the natural process of our skin yeah we're gross yeah we are um and so that's just that's hanging around after we leave somewhere so this is roughly two years after marie's report in washington state um, and that these Colorado detectives are doing their own investigation into a perpetrator in their areas. 
And if it weren't for Galbraith talking to her husband about this, the, this may not have even been uncovered that this same assailant had been going around the Denver area. So, you know, good on her for <laughs> for bringing it up to her husband, who also walks, works in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they probably often talk about cases that they have to, to bounce ideas off of each other. Mm -hmm. And, and um, in this instance, it, it really, it worked in, in her favor. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, these, these two detectives did their due diligence and went forward with looking into what could have happened to these women. Yeah. They believed these women. Right. And they investigated. Right. <laughs> Unlike uh, the, the two men in Marie's case. In February 2011, a report was unearthed of a suspicious vehicle that was registered to Mark Patrick O'Leary. His description matched that of the attacker in Colorado. FBI agents collected DNA from his brother, and that showed that one of the two brothers was indeed the rapist. A search warrant was obtained, and it led to Mark Patrick O'Leary's arrest. So he was arrested for the rapes in Colorado. Upon searching his belongings, a mask, gun, women's underwear, and other identifying evidence were uncovered. The search also led to the discovery of numerous pictures of women on O'Leary's hard drive. He would watch women for hundreds of hours, take photos of them, and break into their homes multiple times before the rapes. Wow. So he was stalking these women. It's crazy, too. Anytime you hear something like that, like, that's an intelligent, methodical, skilled person. Like, you know how much good you could be doing in the world? Yeah. I know. I know. We say that all the time. But this is how you're going to use This is what that. you're using that for. I know. So among those in the photos found on O'Leary's hard drive was Marie. Thus proving Marie had been telling the truth all along. Wow. She, I mean, she was raped wow. by O'Leary. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, good. The silver lining there, the ending. Thank God, finally, she got some, some justice there. Oh, yeah. She got even more justice, too. So she ended up suing the city. Good. <laughs> and she won $150,000. Good. Good. Yeah. I mean, again, silver lining. Nothing ever makes up for that happening to you. No. But at least it's nice, A, to be validated, mm -hmm. B, to have not committed suicide, which is a yes. very real outcome. Yes. Uh, and C, you know, be vindicated. Now, I mean, there are probably still people that even despite that are going to say, no, that was, an, that was an injustice. You were lying and you just took the town for money because there are some people who are just a-holes. And there are some people who are so narcissistic, like you said, that they'll just refuse to believe something yes. that's blatantly obvious. Yes. But at least in this case, I'm sure at least some people who thought she was lying will now think, okay, maybe she was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And then finally, it's always nice to get a little bit of cash. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> it doesn't make up for anything, but 
No. I'm sure it'll help her move on. And at the very least, now she's got money to get the hell out of there. Well, that you and... You know, if she couldn't... If she was broke and couldn't afford to leave that town and had to deal with all She had all quit her people, job because of all of this. Right. So, so exactly. at least now she's got money to get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. Go to... Go live somewhere better. Go to Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, n- neither Mason nor Rick Garn were ever disciplined for the mishandling of her case. <sighs> Which is also another gross injustice. Gross injustice. They've changed the the procedure and protocol in the department when it comes to um, sexual assault survivors coming in for interviewing. But like, but who knows if they're even going to follow it? Who right? Who knows if it, it's even going to be followed? They had a procedure before that that said not to inter- interrogate, right. and they still and they didn't follow didn't that. Follow it. And that's my point. Exactly. And now they're not even being disciplined for right. mishandling the case. Right. And again, this isn't like this isn't like somebody you know. This isn't like they ticketed somebody for the right. for doing something, you know, a traffic infraction that they didn't commit. Like yeah. this is one of the worst things that can happen to a human being, and they only made it worse. Right. And now that they've been proven to have been incompetent yes. in their responsibilities, yeah. At the very least, they should not be doing that job anymore because they're garbage at it. Agreed. Fact. And at the very worst, they should have to suffer some kind of financial or criminal penalties. I know. At the very least, they shouldn't be doing the job because no. they're clearly garbage at it. No, clearly garbage. Here's a person who had one of the worst things that can that can happen to a person done to them, and you didn't do anything to stop it. Nope. Or prevent it from happening in Again. the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of them, other women got raped. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, it's I, I know. And, like, and, it's, it's, and it's on their hands for not doing what they needed to do, right. not doing their job. No. Not even doing their job that they're getting paid for. Not doing their... No, exactly. By the people. The people exactly. are paying them to protect them. They chose not to, and now this man was out there probably doing the crime more. Because of their mishandling of her case, they cost people their dignity, their self-respect, money, because now yeah. the city is paying Marie. Yeah. Right, and that's coming out of the tax base. That's coming out of the taxpayers' <laughs> money when they're the ones who right. did this. Right. Did they each take a $75,000 pay cut? Right. Nope. Which is probably what they make, so <laughs> they yeah. shouldn't be there. Right. They should be before, making zero dollars. Before overtime. Yeah. Oh, God. <sighs> so the way that Mason and Rick Garn handled everything with Marie speaking with her telling her she was lying, coercing her to file her truly false report, are tactics that we see too often that prevent survivors from coming forward and filing reports. They feel as though they will not be taken seriously and that they will be told they're lying, especially if they cannot recall all parts of the event. And this is why all police personnel who deal with these kinds of cases should be trained in trauma-informed interviewing. This is a technique to understand how to elicit information from and empathize with a survivor of a sexual assault. Trauma can cause us to lose pieces of the event or capture pieces subconsciously that do not come up until months or even years later, and sometimes not at all. When being interviewed by police, a survivor does not necessarily remember every single bit of their attack. They may remember bits and pieces. They may change their story a few times because more memories are coming back to them and pushing the other ones out. 
The Office for Victims of Crime states that building rapport with the survivor is the first and most important part of interviewing survivors. They further explain that memory loss, lack of focus, emotional reactivity, and multiple versions of a story can all be signs of trauma. Never assume the survivor is evading the truth and never victim blame. Focus on their reality versus your perception of their reality. What the survivor is feeling and expressing is real to them. It's true to them at that moment. Believe them. They suggest during the initial interviews to ask the survivor, quote, what else happened? Or, quote, what happened next? To elicit linear memory, as that may be lacking for some trauma survivors. Atixa.org also explains that the interviewer should explain to the survivor that they will need to ask detailed questions, clarify any slang terms or vague statements, ask devil's advocate questions, and push back if something does not seem to add up. The interviewer must also explain why they have to ask these questions and do these things, and also explain to the survivor that they cannot fail. Again, whatever is their reality in that moment, answering those questions is real. Keeping the questions open-ended allows for their memories to flow. Remember, they are the expert in that moment and reassure them of that. Allowing for open-ended questions gives the survivor the control. He or she controls that conversation and narrative, not the interviewer. Saying things like, quote, tell me more about whatever it is, also provides the survivor with the control to go into more detail and explain more thoroughly and recall more memories. Trauma-informed interviewing, trauma-informed anything, is all about giving that control back to the survivor. Right. I mean, you know, in that room, there's only one person who was there at the event. Let that person be the one to provide information. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyone who was not there when it happened should not be introducing information. They no. should only be guiding that person to provide the information as best as they can. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is stress the person because a stressed person is going to misremember for sure, regardless of what the event is that we're talking about. Right, right. There are also forensic interviewers who uh, are trained in doing these types of things. And, you know, sometimes they'll do the interview with the. Um, with the police kind of like watching so that the police can take their notes but uh so that you know it's guided more towards that trauma-informed area so so they're they know how to get that information without re-traumatizing so sometimes it's beneficial but you know not all police departments are going to have forensic interviewers on hand you know there are departments that have like three people in the office and you know one one guy's got to do all the interviews and Maybe he doesn't know how, but, you know, it, 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 it takes a lot of training to know how to be empathetic and compassionate when interviewing somebody, especially when you are in such a hard profession, such yeah. a, you know, and I don't mean hard in the sense that, I mean, difficult, which it, it is an emotionally, trying. Try, exactly, yeah. an emotionally trying, you know, you, you have to have a hard exterior to be a police officer. Yes. And you can't show your emotions while you're in there with, with a survivor, but you can be empathetic, 100%. Right. 
Right. And you have you have to be able to gauge what their body language and tone is is saying to you because if you're pushing too hard they're not gonna give anything up they might shut down and you're never gonna get any information right so right and at the end of the day isn't isn't that what you're supposed to be doing is getting as much accurate information as you possibly can mm -hmm. you're not supposed to just be getting you know getting this over with Right. You know, and it's not supposed to be, you know, I don't want to do an investigation, so I'm just going to get this person to admit that they lied so that we can be done with this. Like, no, if there's potential for a crime, you need to try to collect as much information as you can. Mm -hmm. You know, even even if you assume that the person is lying or they're making it up for lulls or whatever it is, you need to get as much good information as you can. So that in your own head, you can piece this together and say, yeah, this just doesn't make sense. Right. But don't be looking for reasons to break an argument down. Right. <laughs> right. And if something doesn't make sense, don't say to the person, that doesn't make sense, You're you have to be lying. Right. You know, you, you say, you know, can you tell me more about um, that piece of information? Right. Whatever it is. Because it, say the, the survivor is remembering that the person was wearing a green shirt. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they're like, oh, no, it was a blue shirt. Talk them through that part of the attack. Right. Because they're going to start remembering things. And maybe it was a green shirt and they were mistaken. And they said blue because something else got, popped into their head. And if they start to go through that scenario again... They're more likely to bring back memories of the accurate details. So don't just say you're lying because then that person, they're going to shut down. They're not going to want to speak to you anymore. They're not, they're going to feel ashamed. Yeah. So trying to have those open-ended questions and, and, and just, you know, ease them into, you know, guiding them through the scenario you're going to get more information that way. And then they might say, oh, you know, so he was on top of me and, you know, I looked down for a moment and I saw what he was wearing. And then, you know, the officer can say, oh, okay, do you remember what color his shirt was? Do you remember anything about the colors of what he was wearing? You know, anything like that. And then the survivor might say, oh, I, you know, I remember that it was a green shirt with, you know, buttons down the front. That might be more information than they even got in the original statement from her about, you know, the buttons. Right. And now she's re-remembering that it was green, not blue. So now she's right. multiple times that it was green. Right. Not blue. Right. So you can be more sure that it was right. probably a green shirt. Right. So it's all about guiding them to piece together everything from A to Z. And pushing is never is never a good thing for anyone. Pushing right. always will lead to a shutdown. Right. And that's and that's why, you know, they say torture doesn't work. 
Yeah. Because that's that's pushing as hard as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. So that person is just going to want it to be over as quickly as possible, and they're just going to say whatever. Right. So you're not going to get the truth. You're nope. pretty much never going to get the truth nope. under that level of duress. Exactly. So you back it down to a lesser level of duress, and that just lessens the chance that you're going to get incorrect information, but you're still going to get less accurate information the more the, the level of duress is. Correct. So, you know, that's, and that's why in psychology, as you know, you really want to relax the person, yep. make it easy, make it go slowly, mm-hmm. because that's how you're going to get the most accurate it information. It opens their minds yeah. more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. When you are giving somebody a, a calm environment, a relaxed environment, you're not speaking loudly at them you're making them feel comfortable when somebody feels comfortable they're much more open oh yeah and they're going to be able to reach back and find more of those memories again when you are putting somebody under duress when you're torturing them they're they're essentially going through a trauma, so they're in that fight or flight mode. Right. So their their memories are not right. being and brought forward. Their their logical thought is right. going away. Yeah, we already discussed. We talked about this. the physiological reaction. Exactly, and it's the same thing when you're being interviewed because yeah. again, you're being re-traumatized if right. somebody is being aggressive with you. Yeah. So you're not going to get accurate information. Yep. Exactly. So again, you want to give the control to the survivor. Assault is all about taking away someone's power and control. Give it back to them. Do not accuse them of lying. Do not victim blame. And do be empathetic. And if you didn't know, uh, Marie's story was the subject of a 2015 article written by Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller for the Marshall Project and ProPublica. It won the 2015 George Polk Award for Justice Reporting and the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting. The article is entitled An Unbelievable Story of Rape, and I will link it in the show notes. And uh, if you also didn't know, Netflix produced a movie called Unbelievable, which was based off the article. And uh, it was a very good movie. Very well done. Very, very well done. Um, The writing was fantastic. The storytelling was fantastic. The acting was fantastic. Um, The girl who played Marie, I mean, you really, you you feel her story. I thought it was extremely well done. Um, so if you guys want to watch that, um, again, it's on Netflix called Unbelievable. And that concludes episode nine of Blackbird. If you or someone you know has a story you would like to share on Blackbird, please email us at blackbirdadvocacy at gmail.com. All references for this episode are in the show notes. And as always, stay safe. Know that you do not need to suffer in silence. And continue to social distance if you can. Pick yourself up a mountain bike. Great way to social distance. Oh.
We haven't gone mountain biking in a while. No, no. Yeah, that's good, though. You're outside. You're yeah. definitely going to be six feet apart from each other. For sure. Or you're, or you're very bad or very good. <laughs> and if you're good enough to ride trails within six feet of another rider, then you don't need me to tell you to get a mountain bike. That's also terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I, I would not recommend it. No. No. So, great way to stay six that's, feet apart. That's a, yeah, that's a good <laughs> suggestion. All right, well, thanks, guys. Peace.